I'll direct your attention back to Ephesians 4. To this point in chapter 4, the emphasis has been on the unity of the body, a unity which rests upon the foundation of the unity of the Godhead, and that is reflected in verses we looked at last week, verses 4 to 6. Those verses said there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. This is the unity with which we have been entrusted. Each believer has been given the charge to maintain or to endeavor to keep this unity with lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, and forbearance. That's, where the, that's how the chapter began. If you go back to verse 1, Paul says, I, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. William Henderson has said of this call to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace and to maintain the unity that we've been given, he says, it is only when the church recognizes its unity and strives more and more to preserve it, with each member cooperating with all the others, only then will the gospel move mightily forward among the nations, only then will the church itself rejoice, only then will Satan himself tremble, and only then will the name of God be glorified. End quote. So we see there from that quote how much rests upon the unity of the church. How much rests upon the unity of the members being as unified as possible in accordance with the unity of the Trinity itself. So this is a high calling. But it's one that the Lord will help us by grace to attain to. One principle of reading and understanding and interpreting the scriptures is that the Lord never expects of us that which he will not enable us by grace and by much help of the Spirit to perform. So to back away from a text like this and to say that it is just impossible for such a diverse group of people to all get along for any length of time, to say that that is an impossibility, is to deny the grace of Christ given to his church, the help given to his church to be what he has called the church to be on earth. Unity is essential. It is vital. If we are to maintain the ministry and fulfill the calling that he has given to us as his church, disunity will not accomplish this task but much to the contrary. But we're moving in a different direction this morning. You'll notice the first word of verse 7 is a word of contrast. Verse 7 reads, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended... What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? 
He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fulfill or that he might fill all things. So into this great unity comes diversity. Ian Hamilton is is a, a name that I've quoted often in our study of Ephesians. He says, Paul did not mean through preaching unity, uniformity. He did not mean that every individual member will look just alike, be just alike, have the same gifts, use them to the same degree. For, on the other hand, he says, just as within the oneness of the Trinity there is glorious diversity, so within the oneness of the church there is a diversity that is to be appreciated and practiced. So if the unity of the Trinity is the foundation What we see in the unity of the Trinity is a great diversity. There is Father, Son, and Spirit. All of those are referenced in verses 4 through 6. It is the Father's work to plan, if you will. It is the Son's work to come and actually carry out in time the Father's purpose of redemption. And then it is the Spirit's work to make application of the Son's accomplishments to His people. So while we serve and preach and the Scriptures teach us about this one God, this one God is acting in a diverse way. The Son's activity is unique to the Son. The Spirit's activity is unique to the Spirit. The Father's activity is unique to the Father. But yet, how greatly are they unified in this one overarching goal and plan of redemption? This is the picture of Christ's church, a unified, a unified yet diverse group, body, all working toward the same end, and that being the utmost glory given to Jesus Christ. We're moving into this section of chapter 4 that begins to speak concerning spiritual gifts, how Christ has enabled each one of us and has given us some capacity to serve him. And so before we get too involved, let's give definition to spiritual gifts. I like Curtis Vaughn's definition best of all that I read in studying these verses. He says a spiritual gift is a special capacity, a special capacity for service granted to those who are in Christ, not completely identified with their natural abilities. So this is a special gift of Christ to individuals to be used in his church. And so I want to look at verse 7 and really use three headings this morning to bring the truth of verse 7 out. First, every believer receives a gift. We're going to see that out of verse 7. Secondly, every gift is according to grace. And then third, every gift is given by Christ. Seems simple enough, but Lord help us to understand it rightly, so let's pray towards that end. Father, we come to your word this morning and we're asking, Lord, that you enlighten our minds, that you illumine our understanding. Help us to see the beauty and generosity of the Lord Jesus Christ 
in giving gifts to his church to be used unto his glory, to promote his gospel, to build up the body of faith, but also to call the lost world around us to faith in him. We pray your blessing would rest upon this time, and we do so in Christ's name. Amen. When you think about spiritual gifts, there are a handful of places in the New Testament that speak to spiritual gifts. If you were to turn to those places, of which they are Romans chapter 12, we're going to look at that later, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, here in Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11 through 12, what you'll find there, if you were to make a list of spiritual gifts, you would count up around 20 that the New Testament shows very plainly and very clearly that Christ has given to his church. That being the case, we're not led to assume that there are only 20 spiritual gifts. That number is up to Christ himself. How we would categorize them is up to Christ himself. These special capacities that he has given us for service. Another thing that you would find if you looked at these passages concerning spiritual gifts is very often the metaphor used to illustrate them is the physical body. Most notably, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you remember that passage, which we'll get to in time this morning, that speaks of the hand and the ear and the eye and the nose all acting as one unified body to accomplish a certain purpose. And so, just to summarize what verse 7 is going to teach us this morning, every spiritual gift is given by Christ as a gift of grace to every believer. Just those three headings. Every gift is given by Christ, by grace, to every individual believer. So let's look first in verse 7, where it teaches us that all believers receive a gift or gifts from Christ. Verse 7 says, but to each one. To each one. Every one of you who are in Christ have some capacity to serve the body. Everyone who is in Christ has some capacity, has something unique to offer in service to the body. One application that we can make right from the beginning is that since this is so, again, verse 7, to each one, since this is so, no one in the church need feel that they are of no use or have no task to perform. That simply is false. The opposite is true. You are needed, a necessary member that Christ has given to his church in a local place to carry out the ministry, you are an absolute necessity. So there are none who should feel like they are without some capacity to serve. And like we would hear so often, some people would say, nobody notices if I'm not there anyway. Well, that's not true. 
just as if we were to have one of our physical members removed, we would immediately notice and feel acutely what is lacking. This is the same within the body of Christ, the body of Christ's church. To each one he has given a gift. The word but here that begins verse 7 marks a change of emphasis. Verses 1 through 6 has dealt with the great unity. Now we begin to turn to the diversity that makes up the greater whole. And how diverse the church is. And all of this is at Christ's doing. Another thing that we're taught here is that these gifts are not to be self-serving. Christ has not gifted you to build a ministry centered around you. Christ has not gifted me to build a ministry centered around me. If you look down in the 12th verse, verse 12 of chapter 4 seems to be the governing context of all of this talk of Paul about spiritual gifts. And if you find the 12th verse, what you're going to read there is that he speaks of the edifying or the building up of the body of Christ. Every gift that Christ gives to His church is unto the edifying or the building up of His body. And He supplies what the church needs when the church needs it, all according to His own good pleasure. One of the most helpful commentaries that I've read in studying Ephesians is written by Charles Hodge. And if you read Charles Hodge much, one of the things that you'll come to appreciate about him is he's not real wordy. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't take page after page after page to say something. He just lays it out. And this is what he says concerning the spiritual gifts and the individual nature of them. He says, to refuse to occupy the position assigned you by Christ in His church is to refuse to belong to the church at all. He goes on to say, if the foot refuses to be a foot, it does not then mysteriously become a hand. Far to the contrary, it is cut off and perishes. That's what you have to like about Charles Hodge. He's to the point. And his quote here is, is teaching, Christ has gifted you specifically, individually, and you are left then to occupy that position. It is not up to you to say, I don't like this gift. I don't like this position. You can't change your gift based upon what you would desire to do. Your and my responsibility then is to accept, to embrace and to pray for effective use. So after we see that to each one, if you're a believer in Christ, do not doubt the fact that He has gifted you. And by the way, how do you know what that gift is? Years ago when I was in seminary, a long time ago, they dispensed to us these spiritual gift tests and you would multiple choice, answer all of these questions, and you would tally your responses to these questions in the end, and then you would take these responses and you would compare them to this chart. And if you had this many responses, negative or positive, and all of these things would point you to what your spiritual gift is or may be. Those things can be helpful, I suppose. But the greatest way 
that I can see in Scripture is to, to discern what your spiritual gift is, is to be active in the body, and then if the Lord were to grant you some type of ability to, to see yourself in the body is to see what you do in that body, that is, the, to the benefit of others. If others repeatedly tell you, oh, I'm so, it's so good to see you, you're such an encouragement to me, then you might very well suppose that your gift or one of them, some part of your gift given to you by Christ, is to encourage the hearts of the believers. We're told to pray that way. That the hearts of the, of the saints would be refreshed. That's one of the commendations of Christ to Philemon. Through Onesimus, the hearts of the saints were refreshed by you, brother. Whatever capacity you have that benefits others is your spiritual gift. And necessarily, we need to realize that when we withhold that from the church, through our absence or whatever else may be, we are, in, in essence, hurting the body of Christ. The Lord gifts you in such a manner that not only your physical presence, but the exercising of your gift is edifying the body, building it up to be what He has called us to be. And so the next part of this, not only does each person, each individual believer, receive a gift from Christ... Notice that verse 7 tells us, each one of us, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. The gift that you have been given by Christ is according to grace. It's not according to your merit nor mine. It's not according to our capacity to receive it. That's an important point we're going to come back to. It is not the gift of our own choosing, not the gift of our asking, but it is the gift of His own good pleasure. Now, if we were to, to unpack that just a bit, we could say, first of all, that since these are grace gifts, that they are not earned. We're not getting gifts according to our service. We're giving, we are given gifts to serve. But not only are we not earning these gifts, I like this, and this harkens back to what Curtis Vaughn has said, our spiritual gifts do not necessarily correspond to natural ability. It's not as if the Lord just takes what He naturally endowed you with and turns it up just a bit. That's not to deny that your natural abilities may mesh into the spiritual gift, but it could be that your spiritual gift that the Lord has given you goes totally contrary to your natural ability. I hesitate to use myself as an example of this, but I think it may be the greatest example that at least can come from my mind. I wrestled for a year or so mightily with the call to preach. Not because I doubted that the Lord was calling me into it. That, that was very clear and evident in my heart and mind. I had that part settled. But my wrestling 
was knowing that that call would necessarily put me in front of a group of people where I had to say something, which was not my strong point, which was not what I enjoyed at all. So much so that those that knew me best, when I began to make known that I felt like the Lord was calling me to preach, I had a few people discourage me from it. Because of that, I had a few people, several people just laughed. But I can bear witness to you, though it's taken time and I'm not totally devoid of fear when I stand before you, the Lord has enabled me at least to some degree to carry out what he has called me to do. And I share that with you only to make this point. Young people, I want you to listen to me. And even you older people. The Lord may call you to do something that goes so contrary to your nature that your first inclination is to completely avoid it. Is to completely dismiss it. Because when you look in your mind's eye down the road, you just can't see yourself doing that. It very well may be that the Lord is going to give you this special capacity for service that has nothing whatsoever to do with your natural makeup. It could be, and this this proves to be the case for many people that I know, not just pastors, but other believers, that the Lord uses those natural abilities and gifts and He meshes it perfectly with the spiritual gift that He has given them. All of this is according to the wisdom of God. All of this is according to the wisdom of Christ giving gifts to His church. You can think of biblical illustrations for this. We're reading as a family through the book of Genesis in in a children's storybook form. But even in that form, this comes across. What the Lord called Moses to do, to go to Pharaoh, to announce Thus says the Lord, let my people go. What was Moses' response? Basically, he said, I can't do it. I can't speak. I'm not good with words. I stutter and I stammer. And this greatly displeased the Lord, no doubt. But in essence, he provided through Aaron and also through Moses himself the ability to do what he's been called to do. Another important part of this is to know that we do not choose the gifts ourselves. It's not as if we are presented at the time of our conversion all of these options and we go and choose gifts that we think we can excel in. These gifts are given to us by Christ according to His wisdom. So they are given to us by grace. Just like our salvation initially It is by grace, then your ability to serve Christ is also given to you by grace. Again, verse 7 says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. The important word here in this part of the verse is the word measure. The word measure means to meet out, 
It refers to a determined portion, a set quantity. I believe all the contemporary translations use that word. ESV, New American Standard, New King James used the word measure. Notice, according to the measure of Christ's gift. And when Christ said, based upon Peter's confession, that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it, part of the way that he fulfills that is through measuring out gifts to individual believers to use in his strength according to what he would supply unto his glory. When we realize this, the first implication that comes to mind, the first application, if you will, is this rules out, or it should rule out, jealousy over another person's gift. I want you to listen to what Ian Hamilton says about this being jealous of another brother or sister's spiritual gift to be used in the church. And again, Ian Hamilton is one that does not mince words. He says, to envy another Christian's gift of grace is to question the wisdom of Christ. To envy another Christian's gift is to question the wisdom of the giver. These gifts are given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then if you look at verses 8 and 9 and 10, we may come back to this a bit next week, but just looking at this, these verses tell us that Christ is uniquely qualified to dispense the gifts that he will. We're taken back into Psalm 68. You may have a reference there where Paul quotes partially from Psalm 68, verse 18. But if you were to go and compare that verse in Psalm 68 to what Paul wrote, you'll notice that he changes the words. In Psalm 68, it says there that God, Christ, he's making application here, is receiving gifts from men. But here, when Paul quotes it, or when he makes application of it, he says that he is giving gifts to men. Now, this has caused great consternation for some. Occasionally, you'll run across people who try to disprove the infallibility of the Scripture. And infallibility means the absolute perfection of Scripture, the fact that it is not an error, that it does not contradict itself. If you were to go to a bookstore or look up online supposed fallibilities of Scripture, I think this verse might be somewhere up close to the list because people say, look here, the Bible can't even get right what it says in one place and it's quoted in another and it's totally changed. Don't worry about those kinds of things. We believe that the Scripture is inspired of God in Paul, through inspiration and making perfect application of Psalm 68, verse 18, 
is here telling us that it is because of Christ's great exploits in coming to earth, descending, conquering death in the grave, making payment for our sin, ascending into heaven, that he is now uniquely qualified to give gifts to men. So let's read verse 8. Therefore he says, here's the quotation out of Psalm 68, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. And then you'll see in parenthesis verses 9 and 10. Verses 9 and 10 just doesn't really seem to fit in the overall scheme of Ephesians chapter 4. But what verses 9 and 10 are, are is the foundation and the reasoning in Paul's mind and in the Spirit inspiring him to tell us and to teach us why Christ is uniquely fit to give gifts to his church. He says, now this he ascended, referring to Christ's ascension that takes place there in Acts chapter 1. This ascension of his, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? And then Paul's reasoning is, he who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. If you follow Paul's mind, what he's saying is that the one that ascended into heaven first must have descended into the lower parts of the earth, accomplished a work there, and then returns gloriously into heaven. And as he does so, he brings in Psalm 68, verse 18. As he is leading captivity captive, he is now dispensing gifts to men. Now, no doubt, verse 9 and 10 has been referenced very often to what some refer to Christ's descent into hell. And that descent is supposed to have taken place between his death on the cross and his ensuing resurrection. What did Christ do in that intervening time? Where was he? Well, some, based upon verse 9 and 10, say that during that time, and also bringing in something that Peter has written in one of his epistles, say that Christ descended into hell and preached there to the spirits who were in prison. If you go and look and read the Apostles' Creed, for example, the Apostles' Creed captures this phrase by saying he descended into hell. But, in my own mind and understanding, I don't think that's what Paul is teaching here. I think Paul is just saying that he descended into the lower parts of the earth, into this sphere of our life. You go to Philippians chapter 2. He came into this sphere and he humbled himself and he accomplished his work and then he ascended back into heaven. And if we were to look at that conversation that Jesus had with the thief on the cross, what does he tell him? He says, today, you will be with me, where? In paradise. Abraham's bosom. Heaven. Now, it's not a heretical doctrine at all to, to think of Christ descending into hell. There are many sound theologians and, and doctors of theology who would teach you that. 
I don't think this is what Paul is getting at in verses 9 and 10. I think he is saying just on a base level that Christ first descended into the lower parts of the earth, the lower parts of the earth here being our sphere. He humbled himself, came as a, as a man, as a servant, humbled himself to the point of death. And then he also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. This is what uniquely qualifies him to give gifts to believers as he will to accomplish his purpose. To each one. So make application of this to yourself. If you're in Christ, you have a unique capacity to serve the body. What does that, what does that imply? If you have a unique capacity to serve the body, it implies that you will assemble with the body. You will not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the manner of some. If you have something unique to supply to the body, then your presence is necessary. It also implies that we receive this gift as a gift, not something that we have earned, but something that Christ in His goodness and according to His wisdom has given. And then part of that gift implies our contentment with it. That we be content with using it unto His glory. Now I want to close by looking at one of these passages that teach us about spiritual gifts, and that is Romans chapter 12, if you would turn there and look at verse 3 it says very much the same thing that we've just looked at in Ephesians 4 Romans 12 verse 3 it's interesting here that this is where Paul begins to make application of all the doctrine of the first 11 chapters, and this is where he begins. So it mirrors the book of Ephesians in that sense. He says in the third verse, For I say that through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ. So again, Paul is teaching the great unity through diversity. In the fifth verse, he says, So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching. He who exhorts in exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And here is the mentioning of some of those more specific gifts that Christ has given but let's go to one more place before we conclude, that being 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where this great image of the body comes to life. 
I'm going to read a few verses here, beginning in verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given a word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, and so on, till you get down to verse 11. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. And then the illustration. For as the body is one and has many members, speaking here of the physical body, but all the members of that one body being many are one, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. For in fact the body is not one member, but many. And here's the conversation between the members of the body. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is therefore, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? Or if the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? And you can keep on reading through Rome, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 12 and see this great diversity all working to the same purpose. This concludes in the 27th verse. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. Use the gift that you've been given, your grace gift given to you by Christ to minister to one another. All of those great things in the New Testament we're told to do with and for one another are dependent upon the endowment of grace that we have been given as Christ has measured out to us. Whatever he has measured out to you, he has measured out to you for you to measure out to those around you. A great diverse yet unified whole is what we're called to be. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your wisdom.
in building and establishing your church. We're thankful, Lord, that you give us as a body what we need when we need it. We're thankful for each individual member and the gift that you have bestowed upon them. Help us all, Lord, to be faithful in administering these gifts unto the building up the edification of the body. Lord, you've given us such great imagery and illustration. Every person, every believer is vital and essential to the health of a local assembly. Lord, teach us this increasingly. Make us willing and ready to joyfully, willingly employ that gift that you have given. We pray it unto Christ's good pleasure, and we ask that he would prosper the work, that we would be enabled to be what you've called us to be in Scripture, a city set on a hill, a light in a dark place, the very salt of the earth. We pray it unto his glory, and in his name, amen.